from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Hilo, Hawaii, I'm Zach Jabal. You just wanted to say that. And this is the VinePair <laughs> podcast. Wow, what a wow, flex. brag. <laughs> yeah, such a brag. I was at first going to be like... You know, at least Joanna's still with us. But, you know, we just all got to get jealous that Zach's in Hawaii. Well, if it makes you feel any better, it's, I think, rained 11 inches since we've been here, and it's only been a couple of days. Does it so. rain a lot in Hawaii? Oh, boo-hoo. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it does rain a lot where we are sometimes. We happen to pick possibly the rainiest week of, like, the last five years to oh, come, wow. it seems oh, like. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's funny about coming to, you know, like kind of tropical locations in general is you have that capacity for just truly incredible amounts of rainfall mm-hmm. in incredibly short periods of time. We were, we took the kids to a, uh, to a, uh, like a pool, uh, like you know, a swimming pool and stuff yesterday. And in the span of about 20 minutes, we had like beautiful sunny weather and just the hardest rainfall that either kid has ever seen and about as hard as i've ever seen it rain and then back to sun and then back to rain again it's just it's super unpredictable which is kind of fun but also makes it hard to do some of the things that might seem appealing uh in hawaii so anyhow point is you know i'm here i wanted to show my commitment to the listeners as i said uh, <laughs> before we started recording y'all have been showing up for us so you know we want to show up for you yes we got adam fresh off a trip yeah me on vacation joanna um, biding my time ready to have a ready to have a child so you know yeah we're, we're here for you folks <laughs> just twiddling them thumbs are uh, you eating a lot of pineapple zach you know actually so we were gonna i'll talk about this more when we talk about what we've been drinking but the highlight of the trip so far for sure has been the fruit uh mm-hmm. love, love me some fresh fruit not a lot of pineapple uh a lot of a lot of papaya mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of mango i like pineapple but weirdly it's like the fruit that my son doesn't like so we haven't been getting into that as much he's more a fan of the others so you know yeah lots of lots of fresh fruit and of course like my daughter love her is like no i just all i all i want to eat on this trip apparently is like olives and blueberries that's hilarious (laughs) okay or no poke well no poke for me but lots for for caitlin and for saul yeah i know no coming to hawaii with a seafood allergy is not the greatest what about spam Uh, spam (laughs) no i I haven't i'm not allergic but haven't gotten there yet maybe maybe the next day the thing i'm really looking forward to is uh getting some malasadas some hawaiian donuts uh, uh, coming up so yeah big fan of those and uh you know lots of other fun stuff we're going to a luau uh in a couple well by the time you all listen to this we all we all been to said luau but that'll be cool get some get some Some pork and some poi Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep yep yep. cool cool so what have you been drinking zach well i was gonna say one of the highlights for me has been just combining fresh fruit and booze uh which is great Mm -hmm. but you know i do that at home sometimes but it's nice when you have a range of options beyond just mostly citrus although there is of course citrus here as well uh, a lot of passion fruit or lily koi as okay. it's known in hawaiian and is delicious like just a little sweet nice and tart pairs really nicely with uh so far tequila mm. rum vodka you know goes well <laughs> it's been been nice um also drinking uh some local beers had uh, a uh 
an IPA from a brewery here on Hilo called Ona. It was nice, you know, mm-hmm. pretty classic. I would say they, they that was just the only one that I happened to try. They have a range of beers, but a pretty classic kind of West Coast style hop forward IPA, but not overly bitter, uh, nice and pleasant. And uh, mm. yeah, that's kind of been a lot of it. We're uh, we're we're gonna do some. The we're Caitlin and I are getting a a night out away from the kids once my parents get here, so uh, we will probably hit one of the one of the cocktail bars here in Hilo, but have not really gotten a chance to do a lot of that. We had uh, pina coladas at like a touristy kind of restaurant in downtown Hilo, which were fine, and definitely like a blended pina colada is not a bad thing, especially mm-hmm. when the fruit in it is fresh. But uh, looking forward to something. I think the the bar we're going to go to has some interesting looking kind of renditions of your classic Hawaiian cocktails or tropical cocktails, and that should be pretty interesting. So yeah, nice. how about you, Joanna? Cool. No Anything? pass, pass for me. Pass. Pass. <laughs> it's totally pass. You're just done. You guys are drinking for me. Yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing for me. I got nothing to say. <laughs> well, you were just Adam, in, yeah, uh, you just got back from a trip of pretty I was in Kentucky. <laughs> Spirits um, heavy trip. First of all, I have a I have a quiz for you guys. Pop quiz. Okay. Oh God. Is Louisville, Kentucky, in the South or the Midwest? I mean, it's in the South. I think the South as well. But but right I think geographically is Indiana. Is. Yeah. So we asked that question to a bunch of people because there's a it's such an interesting city because there's lots of stuff that feels Southern. So a lot of people would say to me as their end answer. It's the first city in the South. Huh. Like, because there's a lot of the city that feels Southern, but just as much, if not more, that feels Midwestern. Hmm. And there's, because they don't have any pro sports teams, there's a lot of allegiance to like Cincinnati teams and Indianapolis teams. And they're the closer cities. Indianapolis is only an hour and 20 minute drive. Whereas the closest other major southern city is Nashville, which is almost two and a half hours or longer, right? Mm-hmm. So, and what's interesting though is what everyone says is now go an hour away from Louisville to Lexington, and then you're in the South. Right. <laughs> then you are for sure in the South. But like, it's this very interesting city and also has more um, iron architecture than almost anywhere besides Soho. So, you know, all that like beautiful, all those beautiful iron buildings in Soho, it's all over Louisville's downtown. Um, so, I mean, just a very pretty city. Um, and yes, I was there for, for lots of work meetings, um, trying to get all those in before I am also out. Um, but I got to drink some, some delicious bourbon. Um, and the few of the highlights for me was one, we went to this really cool, uh, bar that's opened in the area, I think, of Nulu in uh, Louisville, like the neighborhood of Nulu, called Neat, and okay. it's become this like thing over the past well, the taters um, <laughs> that uh, basically people are now really into vintage bottles of bourbon, so bourbons from the 40s 50s 60s 70s and these dusty hunters go out and find <laughs> these bottles and i mean little like like liquidating people's attics and stuff like that and in kentucky it's actually legal for stores and bars to resell someone's private collection wow so you have these bars that a lot of bars now that are like devoting you know a few bottles to 
things that are antiques, but this bar, that's all they have. And I got to drink some really unique bourbon. Um, I drank Old Crow from the 60s That's that was part of what was called like the Chessmen campaign. So basically they started putting old so it's really weird like i started people have started saying that they think well a lot of like these bourbon people have saying they think old crow from the 60s and 70s is now considered like the best bourbon that was ever made and the chessman series is one of the series that people look for and it was in an order to drive up the business for bourbon and interest old crow decided to create a full chess set of porcelain chess pieces and fill them with bourbon, their bourbon. And the idea was you collected the entire set and could play chess. Wow. That's so smart. And Such a smart marketing thing. There's a bunch of that. You see that happened in like the 60s, 70s and 80s when nobody wanted this stuff. Yeah. And you know, the, and it's, inter- everyone talks about that. There's still this like very much like in Louisville and, you know, surrounding in the surrounding areas, recognition that like this boom that's happening is incredible but no one says they forget that even up until like the late 90s people were trying to give this away basically and now some of these bourbons that were selling for like seven or eight bucks on the lower shelf of a liquor store are now bourbons that are are reselling for thousands of dollars wow yeah these bottles are really cool yeah they're really cool um which is pretty insane so i got to have that i also got to have yeah, it was delicious. I mean, look, I had a half ounce because it was $50 a half ounce. Oh, my goodness. So, like, we did one. We were lucky to be <laughs> out with, like, a, with, with one of our partners who paid for it. Um, and then we all tried it. But it was pretty It was pretty delicious. And then I also had a full ounce pour of um, a 1983 uh, wild turkey that was delicious. And I've always liked wild turkey. Um, and that's my birth year. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah. now you all know how old I am. <laughs> um, bourbon. Yeah, and it that was pretty cool. And that was that was much more reasonable. That was like twenty five. Um it was an eight year old bourbon. It was it was Wild Turkey one oh one, eight years Ooh. old, nineteen eighty three. Uh and that was, you know, twenty five bucks for the full ounce. So that was like a felt like a little bit better of a deal. But you know, it's it's really interesting sort of what you see there. And then the other thing you see is there were like these other bourbons that are only in the Japanese market. And I think that's the other thing that everyone, a lot of people don't realize is that when bourbon was really, really down here, one of its strongest markets was Japan. Yeah, And then there were other parts of Europe that were still really into bourbon, including apparently France. Hmm. And so, and that's why Japan, that's why there's a lot of Japanese companies that own bourbon brand. So we, you know, obviously Suntory owns Beam and Makers, but then Kirin owns Four Roses. Right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason that Japanese companies own bourbon brands is because bourbon has always been really really popular in Japan. And I found that fascinating. But so there's also like a lot of brands that were at this place neat that are like brands made by a distillery that just exists now in like the Japanese market that are basically the same as one of the coveted brands here. So for example, um, they had bottles of ancient age, which was a brand that was pretty big in the United States, like in the seventies and eighties, and then has stayed big in Japan and is still apparently quite affordable in Japan. But in, um, in the U S now it's Eagle rare. 
and oh. most people think it's the same liquid. So, yeah. and you know, now Eagle Rare is like almost impossible to find. I think people, so, a lot of people think Blanton's was created for the Japanese market it was. specifically, right? So that's the other thing that I, I want to write an article about is it was amazing. Everyone in Louisville is pretty honest that like everyone behind the stick is pretty honest. Like eh, it's Blanton's like, who cares? Like but if you go, too. yeah, but if you go to any bar in Kentucky and there's Blanton's on the back bar, I guarantee you the horse isn't there. And if you ask any bartender why for the Usually, it is because a big spender came in, ordered a glass of Blanton's, oh. and then said, I'll give you a few, a few hundred bucks for the horse. Oh, my goodness. And people are buying the fucking horse. Just the stopper. <laughs> Just the stopper. Because they're collecting them because they want to spell out Blanton's yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so yeah. they're paying. And, the, and what bartenders would be like, no, 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 I won't sell you the horse. No, yeah, yeah sure. A few hundred bucks? Yeah, sure. Here's the horse. <laughs> Like wow. it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, I also like got to go to some of my, I think it was my second ever distillery visit. Um, we got to tour some amazing distilleries when we were meeting with people. And um, it's just, it's pretty incredible how much money has rushed into Kentucky. You know, we saw distilleries owned by private equity. We saw distilleries owned by people of very high net worth. We saw distilleries obviously owned by large companies. Like it's just insane and there's also a lot more now in kentucky distilleries that are opening to almost function like mgp so Hmm. they have their own brand but they're also following that model of like well there's lots of people who think they want to start a bourbon brand but they don't want to have the capital to go all in and this again was apparently like not a thing even Hmm. over a decade ago and now you have a bunch of distilleries that are opening with that kind of a business model where it's like, well, yeah, we have our brand, but then we also produce the whiskeys for X other brands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, realizing like MGP really had a monopoly on that for a very long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing that MGP doesn't have that these brands, these companies have is MGP is made in Indiana. Yep. It's not Kentucky. And so if someone asks, well, is this a bourbon from Kentucky and you have MGP juice, you can't say that. No, it's not. But these are. And so there's like this, it's it's just, it's so interesting. I mean, the, and everyone has just said it's it's completely changed Louisville. Like the amount of money that has rushed in has just changed the bar scene, the restaurant scene, the hospitality scene, the hotels, everything. And so it was really fascinating. a question that I wanted to ask, which was, I was in Louisville a number of years ago for a friend's wedding. Yeah. His wife is from Louisville, and so that was where they had it. And I had a great time, experienced some of what you talked about, although even in those days, the affordability of some cool bottles of, you know, like, I was really one of the only people in my friend group who was interested in going to some of the, like, you know, sort of better bars and yeah. looking for some interesting bottles. But, you know, it was, it was striking to me how much more affordable some of the uh, bourbons and other whiskeys I wanted to drink were in Louisville than they were in Seattle or New York or whatever. But what also surprised me, or at least I thought at the time was, you know, why isn't this a bigger tourist destination? And in particular, more of a destination for things like, I don't know, bachelor parties and stuff like that, right? Like, or bachelorette parties. Why isn't it more akin to Nashville? And 
I didn't have an answer for it. I mean, I don't know. It, it does strike me as sort of maybe, you know, Nashville is a little bigger, has obviously the kind of association with music. But I would think that, you know, the bourbon is a big draw for a lot of people. Obviously, it's an incredibly popular spirit. And I was wondering, you know, did you get a sense, Adam, from being there that, you know, it is becoming much more of a tourist destination than it used to be? Absolutely. And the reason it for just that, hit a new record, right? Yes. The Kentucky and Bourbon the, Trail. And Zach, the reason for that is how long ago were you there? Probably eight or nine years yeah. ago now. So the reason for that is before this, one of the main reasons why like Louisville wasn't the destination and why I mean there are bachelor parties that I think went to Kentucky, but is that the actual distilleries that had these hospitality centers, they are far apart from each other the bourbon they are very i mean Mm -hmm. these are ultimately especially the big ones this let's not romanticize this these are factories yeah you know these are huge factories that happen to you know have visitor centers and cool experiences and it is very cool to walk into a rick house and see all these barrels and you know go into the distillery i mean when i was at beam they told me there this one main still we were looking at puts out 200 gallons of whiskey a minute oh my goodness And that and and the distillery we're at was their was their like main location. Their Boston facility, which only produces white label, puts out four hundred gallons off of it still a minute. So like, I mean, it's just it's kind of incredible how much production is happening at these places, and because of that, like, you know you have to have space and then you need massive acreage for all the rick houses that are on the property because you're not going to like for the most part if you if you're trying to do it as close to the source as possible just because of you know logistics you're not going to then like have another facility you know an hour away that you're trucking all these barrels to every day but what has changed in Louisville is these experience centers now that have all opened on what was the old bourbon row and mm-hmm. distilleries actually opening in the town so now yeah. you have like mictors in the town angels envy in the town rabbit hole in the town and then like all the other distilleries are now opening like crazy experiences with either small stills to you know for you to be able to visit wherever so you know there's old forester bardstown is opening a location uh evan williams is downtown like all this stuff is happening so that you can come to louisville for two nights and see and feel like you visited five or six distilleries and stay in Louisville and walk around because let's be honest and be drunk and right. and have access to Uber and things like that and not worry about having to like go an hour outside of Louisville to Bardstown where there's there are distilleries all spread all around but are far from each other I mean yeah four roses is close to beam but it's a 15 minute drive yeah. yeah. And so like you're either hiring a driver the whole time or someone in your group isn't drinking or you know so it's just I think that that's why but they've said now yes and there's a lot a lot more bars and things like that. But the other thing that you see in Louisville which is a segue to our com- our conversation today is Zach the mm-hmm. wine is fucking expensive. <laughs> and what's really oh. interesting is still in town the cocktails are not. A lot of yeah. cocktail bar even fancy cocktail bars we went to a few of like really cool cocktail bars. Like the, um, the my favorite was this place uh, called Expo, which 
happens to be owned by one of the um, people who founded Camp uh, Runamuck, which is a big bartender, you know, immersion program. Um, but they all pride themselves on having like a five or seven dollar cocktail. All of them, wow. the fanciest ones. It's like, well, this is our five dollar cocktail. So at at Expo, it was an old fashioned, right? So like, well, because a lot of also people in Louisville f- say that the official drink of Louisville isn't the mint julep; it's the old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that almost across the board, everywhere we went, the cocktails were very affordable, like ten bucks, eleven bucks. Even yeah. a lot of the whiskey pours are pretty affordable. Besides, like, like everyone was would, would say the same thing to us, like, yeah, like the whiskeys the taters are looking for are expensive and like, and there are bars that are specifically, you know, exist and liquor stores that specifically exist to cater to those people, people who like just want the expensive stuff because that's why they got into bourbon in the first place. Like those places exist and those, you know, those, that pricing exists, but like the bourbons that, you know, if you know, you know, like, you know, larceny or whatever, those are still very affordable on the list. Yeah. And, Meanwhile, the the bottle prices and glass prices are just as expensive as we're seeing everywhere for wine. And, you know, to take part three of this conversation that we've now had over the course of a few weeks, like something's got to give here because it honestly feel you are completely changing the expense of your night now by choosing to have a bottle of wine instead of choosing to have cocktails. And it's crip it's gonna cripple wine. I just I don't I don't know any other way around it. Like, you know, I love wine. So at every you know, we went out tw- two nights in a row to dinner and both late times we had we had wine. And even, you know, though it's a work expense, I'm like, oh, like this is crazy. This yeah. is absolutely crazy that these bottles are all over a hundred dollars. Like, what is going on here? Why are we having such an issue? And so I think what was you know, interesting to me about it was that I thought prior to Louisville, I mean, I know that you had said it's happening in, in Seattle, Zach, but I also know that mm-hmm. Seattle is a city of very high net worth as well, tech, et yep. cetera. That I was like, okay. But then to see it in a town like Louisville, when the cocktail prices are still quite low, I was like, okay, so this is actually a national trend. And we're hearing about it from a lot of listeners emailed in saying the same thing. They're seeing it in their markets. What is going on? Well, I want to offer two theories that are i think related but also might be either one of them could go a long way to explaining this one of them is a little bit related to what i raised on a previous episode which is perhaps a belief in a lot of restaurants now especially where the restaurant operator the general manager whomever believes that it's important to have a wine program because obviously wine is something we strongly associate with dining out or just eating in general but isn't necessarily that passionate about wine and it's basically like here's an opportunity for us to have a high ticket item that some people are going to gravitate towards and if we don't sort of if if the wine is priced in such a way that it dissuades some people away from wine and towards another beverage, well, we don't really care, right? We're not a wine-centric restaurant. We're just a restaurant that has a wine program because we kind of have to and – or not have to, but it's just – it's a piece of hospitality. And in the same way that uh, that restaurant might not shy away from charging you know astronomical prices for certain other luxury goods, be they you know caviar or truffles or whatever – They don't really shy away from charging a lot of money for wine under the perhaps accurate, but also perhaps limiting notion that 
if the, the people who want it will spend for it, and that's just more money for us. And and if we, again, don't sort of bring people into the wine program, well, who gives a shit, right? They'll get a cocktail, they'll get a beer, they'll drink something, and they'll be, and that's fine. That's one piece. I think the other piece is that there has been a, I don't know how else to describe it other than this sort of weird relationship between putting wine on a menu at a certain price and like, it's like almost a, I don't know if it's an ego thing or if it's a like belief that every wine that some, in places where the wine program is really a central part and it is something that the person running it or people running it are really proud of and invested in. But at the same time, there's this belief that like every bottle of wine they bring in has to have this high price tag, whether it's, you know, chasing after certain accolades or whether it's just a belief that they can't, you know, kind of list inexpensive wine because it makes the program look bad or something. But it is really striking to me. And some of it's just greed. I mean, that's the simplest answer, right? Is it's greed. It's a belief that you have a captive audience for the most part. And especially when this is put alongside ever escalating corkage fees. So someone who wants to drink wine with their dinner has basically the the choice of spending 50 bucks in some cases or more to have a bottle of wine that they bring in opened or pay a lot of money over a hundred bucks, almost at a, at a minimum on the list, you know, you kind of are just, you're kind of putting people in a difficult position where if they want to drink wine with their dinner, they just, yeah, they're, they're looking at a, a, an outlay that just, yeah, totally shifts the kind of tone of their, of their meal. So greed is, like I said, the simplest answer and maybe the only answer that is necessary. But I do think that some of it might just come out of a kind of, I don't know, just a lack of excitement around wine in some places and a belief that wine is for people who have a lot of money and can afford to spend it. And so let's milk them for all they're worth. Yeah, I was going to say, like, not to be not to be cynical here, but I feel like even at the places that aren't known for their wine programs, we're seeing this on on menus. And even when the, you know, price points are lower for dishes is more casual place. It just feels like it's an easy way to kind of make up for the past couple of years where restaurants have suffered so much. (laughs) And I think we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, but, you know, with people buying their alcohol for the past couple of years, and they're kind of aware of this now, um, it just, it seems like it's so much harder to get away with um, when you have consumers who are just much more savvy about like margins and markup uh, around wine specifically. Well, and that's what I think is so interesting is that we're saying that consumers are more savvy and they should know and they know, but yet it seems to be more pervasive than it ever has been. And I do wonder also if on top of what you're saying, what you both are saying in terms of like the COVID effect and, you know, sort of this idea of like who wines for, if it also is that we've got like kind of lazy in what what like basically if we've basically decided you know what it's too much to try to to get an american consumer into a new region or a new grape or whatever that offers more affordability and it's really easy when we when we want to sell a ball you know at least to sell the baller bottles of burgundy and napa cab and whatever so you know we're not going to put these other more obscure wines and regions on our list that are more affordable because that 
requires a lot more hand selling and we don't have a lot of people on the floor right now because we're not finding a lot of people who want to be psalms people you know we're not even finding a lot of people that want to be servers right it's there's still Mm -hmm. multiple open jobs so let's go with the tried and true and if the tried and true is expensive well it is what it is because you know i i read the interview we did uh this past week with aldo psalm and he and you know the dude runs one of the greatest restaurants in the world beverage program, right? La Bernadette is arguably one of the greatest restaurants in the world and has an incredible wine program. Then he has a wine bar next door and he is saying, we need to find other regions in this interview, you know, that we need to start looking at Spain and parts of Southern Italy and Portugal and parts of South America. Like he is saying the prices are too high and he operates a three-star Michelin restaurant Mm -hmm. or wait, is La Bernadette three stars or two? I never remember. It's four stars in the Times. So that's all that matters. I think it's um, three. But yeah, I mean, like he operates at one of these, you know, super high end tasting menu restaurants and is saying, we got to, like, we need to find more affordable wine. Like, yeah. that is, that, that, that's when you know it's a real problem. You know, like when it's being felt even there where they aren't selling as much wine because the prices are too damn high, like, there has to be a way that we all decide to fix this. But the only way that I can see is this embrace of these other places. And I don't know that you can do that unless you have people who can help put the guests at ease about those regions and explain them to them and open the wines and give them tastes and, and be willing to sell that wine by the glass. If the consumer doesn't like it so that you can start moving them, you know, Beaujolais we've talked about before is a lot easier because it's oh well it's the region right next to burgundy and it tastes so similar to pinot noir and it's french you know and so the normal american consumer is like oh it's french okay <laughs> you know I, I i don't know how you do that sometimes with some of these portuguese spanish you know something in greek wines that you can't they can't say the name of the grapes you know they've right. never heard of the area where it is and then we're saying but by the way it tastes a lot like your favorite cab or your favorite pinot noir but I do think that one of the problems is we're seeing price inflation not just among the really well-known regions and wines, but it is even in these more obscure varieties yep. no, that's and, true. and places of origin. It's yeah. like everyone collectively decided that your glass pours have to be 15 to $22, yep. regardless of what they cost you wholesale. And I think that's where the galling part of it is for a lot of people. You know, we got someone writing, and I apologize, I don't have the email in front of me, who was saying that, you know, they were seeing glass pours at restaurants near them for, you know, $14, and the bottle itself retails, not wholesales, retails for $14 nearby. Mm-hmm. And it's like, people are not morons. They're going to notice that. Yeah. And it's this is where the greed piece of it comes in. To be fair, that reader was in of, D.C. Just so everyone wants to, that reader was in D.C. Okay. Cool. It, 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 the point is, it's it's a little bit pervasive all over the place. And we, we see this kind of like, you know, it's just a sort of belief that like, you know, like, okay, when I ran restaurant wine programs, there was, you know, there's no... You get some guidance, at least in my case, you know, you get some guidance from kind of the higher ups about how to kind of structure your pricing and you have goals for, you know, kind of what everything's, you know, what your margins are going to be and all that. And you have, a, I had a fair bit of leeway and kind of how to finesse that. And so it meant, you know, I tried to keep my glass pour pricing kind of, 
industry standard. I tried to keep my wine pricing largely industry standard. You know, you'd mark up certain bottles a little less because they were a little more out there and I wanted them to be priced at point at levels where if people felt like they might be able to approach it. And sometimes that meant if a wine was going to be on the list and if I were going to do my sort of standard markup and it would be $105, well, maybe I'd list it for 95 because that's a seems less scary to people because it's two digits instead of three or and sometimes it was okay maybe we're going to bump the margin up a little more because this is a bottle we got a really good price on or it's a special wine or it's an older wine or something like that and you feel more justified i guess as a restaurant and i don't think a good wine program should just have a blanket percentage or markup that it applies to everything like you should finesse that in certain ways but it does seem like a lot of restaurants and bars and maybe it's come out of covid are like just kind of looking to cash in as quickly as possible and because people are used to paying $15 for a glass of wine now or 17 or 22 or whatever it's like we don't care what we're paying for it as the restaurant that's what our glass pour crisp white wine goes for and whatever it is wherever it's from whatever we're paying for it it will be on the list for 15 bucks and you know that that just for one that's a short-sighted kind of alienating way to treat your customers. And if you're not churning through new customers and you're looking to have regulars, it's a a detrimental approach. And the other problem is, is it, it does kind of undermine your whole wine program because people, whether they're acutely aware of the wholesale price or not, they are going to look at other things on your list, cocktails, beer, drinking water only as more frankly they're they're going to seem like bargains comparatively because you know one of the things we've talked about a few times is how cocktails in particular have eaten into wine's share of sort of sales in restaurants and i think a big part of it is like you know the amount of money a restaurant charges you for a glass of wine doesn't feel very earned right in a lot of cases they're really just pouring it in a glass and handing it to you and i'm not saying that that doesn't require some skill obviously there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people aren't necessarily aware of but in some restaurants it's not that much really it's it's pretty lazy in a lot of restaurants distributors basically write the wine list you know the person the man, the person who's doing the ordering is doing 10 other jobs at the same time and they don't really have the know-how or the wherewithal or the time to invest into building a thoughtful you know kind of uh, intelligent program it's just kind of like what do we think will sell what is on closeout what what gets me kickbacks from the distributor whatever and Whereas the cocktail, you know, you see someone make it, you know, it feels yep. like a thing that the restaurant is doing that feels like, okay, I want to spend on this. And even if I go through and price out the ingredients and maybe I'm like, huh, well, I could make this drink at home for, you know, for $6 and it's $17 on the wine list or on the cocktail list rather, but it feels like earned by the restaurant in the same way that the food feels earned. You, They make it there. Wine is not something that's made in the restaurant. And so it's always going to be hard to get a certain kind of person. And I think more and more people to get excited about paying crazy markups for wine when literally all that's happening is it's being opened and poured. And, and again, don't come at me. I did it for a long time. I know that it's more than just that. But from the perspective of the average diner, the average drinker, that's all it appears to be. Well, so I've been thinking about this while you've been chatting. It's an interesting thought experiment I want to have, which is what you're basically saying is, you know, the restaurant has decided that their their crisp white, let's let's take the crisp white perspective, cool, is going to be yeah. 18 bucks, right? And the reason they're going to do that is because that is what it is. They don't care if the wholesale price of that white wine was $8, $5, $12, $18, $18, which is what it normally used to be, right? You would – it was your wholesale price was your glass pour price, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, right. So they don't care. It is what it is. I'll make the margin. And 
you know, they, they assume people won't care. But what we're saying is that basically consumers can easily look at how much that bottle costs and, you know, do wine searcher and see if they're getting scammed. But like, don't you think it should be then the other way around where you gouge? Because with a cocktail, for the most part, at most of these restaurants, they aren't naming a lot of these restaurants are not naming the lick the liquid Spirits, inside. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So like that old fashioned could be made by, you know, uh, a Knob Creek, but it also could very easily be made by like an Evan Williams or an Evan Williams single barrel, which are much more affordable whiskeys. You know, it could have premium bitters in it. It could not. Do you know what I mean? Like you could hide all those costs a lot more. And, and I think that's why most consumers don't really question cocktail prices in the first place, because like they're like, oh, well, uh, maybe my Gregus Martini should be cheaper. But like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how many ounces they use. Like, I kind of think I know how much Grey Goose costs. I buy it a lot, but like, I don't know. It, it looks like it fits in the glass and yeah, cool. And like you said, and, and they made it. So I'll pay. It's like, wouldn't that be the place where like the cocktail should be in the 20s and the wine should be down under 15? Because you would think. Yeah, because yeah. the wine is where you cannot fucking hide. I can literally wine searcher that shit and see the price. Yeah. I, that, I, and it, yeah, it just seems like it's like, it's such a flip of the place to, to gouge. And the only way that I can answer that it's why it is is because of what's said at the beginning, which is, well, it's just because the assumption is, well, people who drink wine have money and people who drink wine don't care about spending their money. And cocktails seem to be much more democratic and everyone drinks those. And you don't want to lose that business across the board because there's a lot of people who drink cocktails who may not drink wine. And the people that drink wine, are you suspending it? That sucks. <laughs> well, yeah. I just, I mean, I just think that there's this assumption on behalf of restaurants that it's like people are willing to pay this much money for a cocktail. So why won't they pay this much for a glass of wine? And then I, I think one of you said this, like, then if they're not going to pay for a glass of wine at this price, they'll just have another cocktail. So we're not losing money really. But what I think this is a problem for is this bigger conversation that we've been having, which is that wine is losing people. And so the restaurants are really doing a disservice <laughs> to wine um, by pricing this way because we had this conversation in, at the office recently, like a lot of us, yeah, opt for cocktails instead of wine because it is a better value. And it just is like, yes, someone's opening a bottle and pouring it for you versus crafting a cocktail um, for you, which seems like it's much more work. Yeah. I want to say something here, which is I was, when I was, when I was running wine programs in particular, we would sometimes get approached, you know, I would have relationships with, uh, you know, mostly wineries in Washington, but sometimes it would be uh, wineries in other places through distributors that I have relationships with. And they would say, okay, you know, we want to have, you know, we really want a glass pour placement in your restaurant and, you know, we'll basically cut you a deal um, on the price, if you agree to take, you know, five cases or something, or agree to place it for three months, and you know, we can kind of have a or you know, some sort of, if not exclusive, it, we could at least have something that was beneficial to both parties. And sometimes that was glass pour, sometimes that was bottle pr- placement, sometimes both. And one thing that was really interesting to me was at that time, all of the wineries that I interacted with. I think, without exception, basically, were very, very, very clear that they wanted 
me to have like sort of a minimum price that I charge, right? They didn't want me to kind of make their wine appear too inexpensive. So whether that was, they didn't want me to undercut the, you know, the retail price, which I mean, I wasn't going to charge less than retail, but they wanted it to be clearly more than retail, or they wanted it to be, you know, at a certain price point. And generally, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't let those people determine my pricing, but I listened to them and, you know, you kind of, you're making a deal. It's part of what you got to do. And it was interesting that at the time that was their concern, right? They didn't want their product to appear cheap. And now I almost wonder if restaurants should be hearing the opposite from wineries and things like that. Like you cannot charge more than X for our wine. Like we we do not want it on your list. If you're going to take a wine that we retail at our, you know, out of our winery for $35, you can't charge a hundred dollars yeah. for it on the wine list. Right. Like we're, we're selling it to you for 20. Why are you marking it up five times? Like, we don't care that you think you can get that for it. Like this has to be a beneficial, a mutually beneficial arrangement. And obviously in a lot of cases, the relationship between the producer and the end seller, especially when it's an on-premise account, is really attenuated, you know, even domestically, but certainly with, you know, wines from overseas, you know, you're going through multiple different companies and the person buying it and then eventually placing it on a list has no relationship with the winery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they're grossly inflating the cost of the wine, that that seller, you know, the producer rather has no real recourse. I mean, maybe they say something to their importer who says something to the distributor who says something to the restaurant. But like, let's be honest, that never happens right. or almost never happens. But if you're certainly in a place like Seattle where you're dealing with a lot of local wineries or California, even in New York, I would think it would behoove wineries to say like, we don't want our wine to be so unapproachably priced on our mm-hmm. list. Like we want people drinking it. The whole point for wineries of having relationships with restaurants, of putting wines in glass pour pricing for the most part was trying to get people exposed to their wine. But if people won't drink it or their only association they'll have with it is like, oh my God, that's so expensive. Why would I ever, I can't afford that. Then those people are not going to be interested in those wineries. They're not going to even be necessarily interested in those regions. Yep. And it's going to, in the end, turn people off. And, and that's one thing if you're Napa, right? And you have a rep. It's another thing entirely if you're an up and coming region, like you should be really vigilant against restaurants, whether they're locally or wherever, charging truly insane amounts of money for your wine. I wonder if that happens. Be curious to know. Let us know, folks. Yeah. Podcast at vinepair.com. If you yeah. if you run a distributor or you're you know, you're a rep or you're you're a winery owner, let us know if you're one of the people that is saying do not charge more than X for my wine. Because I, I think, you know, that is very much one of our only solutions here. You know, yeah. o- otherwise the wine is going to continue to be expensive and it's going to continue to turn people off because the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, it's there's so many barriers already, right? It's confusing, yeah. it's, you know, it's intimidating. And the thing with a cocktail is if you don't like the cocktail that's made for you, most people don't have a problem saying that. I'm 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 out with people all the time who go back to the server and say, you know, I don't like this. It's too sweet or it's too bitter or it's too, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the server always says, Cool, cool, we'll have we'll make you something else. Mm. When you say that about a wine, a lot of times what you hear is, well, that's how it's supposed to taste. <laughs> right? Yeah. Are you saying there's a flaw? No, but I, well, that's how it's supposed to taste. And people get very intimidated by that because even if they're saying, well, that's how it's supposed to taste, but we'll get you another, and, and then the thing that should come out of their mouth is, but we will get you another one, or right. we can sell this bottle by the glass now. We, we don't want you to be unhappy with it. We will, we will open something else for you. There's a lot of fear in saying that. And 
than getting stuck with something that is expensive. Nobody wants that. No one wants to regret paying for something they don't enjoy. And the cocktail feels much easier to pay for. And if you don't enjoy it, say something so they will make you something different. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, and again, I don't think that that gets changed unless, unless the prices come down and and the whole ethos of everything around it changes, which is what we've been talking about for the last like three weeks. Um, So if you have more thoughts on this, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and let us know what you think. Um, We always appreciate it. Also, you know, I think a lot of you listen to the credits, but in case you don't, uh, please, please leave us a, a review, um, you know, rate this on any of your uh, podcast apps, whether it be, you know, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. It uh, is what causes the platforms to surface the show to more people who are looking for things in the world of drinks and food podcasts. So, you know, that goes a very long way for us. And we really would appreciate if you would do that, especially if you're people that love the show and email us about yes, it. It's, we got it's a super very, helpful. We got a very nice review recently. Thank you. We did. Thank you very much. And, uh, uh, Jenna, maybe we'll see you on Friday. Maybe we won't. Maybe. Uh, Zach. I'll be here. Hey, man. Don't worry. I hope <laughs> by the time I talk in. to you, you've eaten some spam, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.